Welcome to the In Camera Review Podcast. Mike, Matt, and Logan, we are lawyers talking about movies. Each week, we pick a movie, an actor, and a year. Up for review this week, the movie, The Little Things. Our actor is Michael Shannon. And our year is 1944 at the 16th Academy Awards, where Casablanca won the Academy Award for Best Picture. The also-rans that year were For Whom the Bell Tolls, Heaven Can Wait, The Human Comedy in Which We Serve, Madame Curie, The More the Merrier, The Oxbow Incident, The Song of Bernadette, Watch on the Rhine, and a bunch of other movies none of us have seen. How many nominees were there? <laughs> 87. <laughs> so so, so back then it was everybody got nominated, then it went down to five, and now everybody gets nominated again. So 1944 was the last time they did 10 nominees until 2010 when the Hurt Locker won. Right. So I actually watched Raya, The Last Dragon. Do you like it? It's very good. I'll say that. Where would you rank it as far as the Croods, New Age, and Tom and Jerry? It's the best of the three. Tom and Jerry is the only movie that I've seen that is worse than The Little Things. And I actually saw them (laughs) back to back. Little Things on Friday, Tom and Jerry on Saturday. Brutal. I am shaking in my boots about Dune. Right, because the only thing that Warner Brothers has done well on is Casablanca in 1944. (laughs) That's where it seems to be going. Like, I feel like they're circling the bowl here. I mean, your high hopes for Dune are just destined to disappoint you, I think. Logan, what'd you watch this week, man? Did little things. I did Casablanca for the first time. And I, man, I love Humphrey Bogart. Right. Right. Oh my God. He's so did you good. do the Maltese Falcon before? I did. I did. Yeah. I actually liked Maltese Falcon a bit more than I liked Casablanca, but he yeah, is just, too. he is so good. Um, and then I did a couple, I, I tried to stick to Michael Shannon movies that I had not seen. Right. Yeah. I, there are a lot I've of seen, them. Right. I've seen Nocturnal Animals and Shape of Water and some of these other ones. Revolutionary and, Road. Right. Revolutionary Road. So I did Elvis and Nixon, which was fantastic. Kevin Spacey plays a great Nixon. Very interesting movie. Love the tie-in to real life story that I had not, knew nothing about. Um, I did 99 Homes. I did The Complete Unknown with him and Rachel Weiss. And then Amy and I watched the movie Pottersville, which is uh, like spoof with him in it. Him in the first 20 minutes of that movie is excellent. He's really good in this sort of comedic role. The rest of the movie, he doesn't get enough leash, I don't think, to get the movie where it needs to go. I watched The Little Things. I did 99 Homes. I also did Elvis and Nixon. I did the movie Shallow Grave with Ewan McGregor. It is Danny Boyle's directorial debut. Came out like two or three years before Train Spotting. It's three people living in an apartment who take in a fourth roommate who immediately dies of a heroin overdose and has a suitcase full of money. You know, it's the, so what do you do? IOUs. That's what you do. That's a car. 275,000. Might want to hang on to that one. It's... Train spotting meets the beach meets Slumdog Millionaire. That was an interesting one to do. I did Casablanca and I also did For Whom the Bell Tolls because I'm a big fan of Hemingway and particularly that book. I did Midnight Special, also Michael Shannon Flick and Take Shelter was a first watch for me. Really enjoyed that one. I did one of the worst movies I've ever seen with Michael Shannon 
probably his worst movie called Dead Birds. It's about a group of Confederate soldiers that hold up in a haunted house. Yeah. How is that a bad movie? I mean, I, I, you see why so, I pulled the trigger on it's, it. It's, hold on. But it did your, not take flight. Piece? I know what my next movie that I'm going to pick is. It was like Cleaver. <laughs> it's... Can I help you? I saw the for sale sign. That was for another car. Got a lot of miles on it. You a, you a salesman? No. How's the trunk space? Standard. Mind if I take a look? I'm in the market. It's not for sale. All I need to do is take a look. You must really like my car. I do. <laughs> Jared Leto and Denzel Washington in the scene from 2020's The Little Things. Also stars... Academy Award winner, Rami Malek. The Little Things was written and directed by a guy named John Lee Hancock. You would know him as the director of the movie, The Founder. We are a fan of that movie on this podcast. He did that movie? He directed it. He also wrote and directed the movie, The Blind Side. Now that I knew. And he also wrote the movie, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Ah, Savannah. His career goes back to the early 90s as a writer and then later as a director. And this was a movie that he wrote in the early 90s. He wrote it in 1993 and he was not going to direct it. He was going to get Spielberg to direct it. And then Spielberg passed because it was too dark. And this is why Steven Spielberg is who he is because he knows (laughs) when to pass on something. (laughs) Good old spielberg I would describe this plot as Seven meets Zodiac. Too much credit there, but go ahead. Definitely seven. You have to throw more movies in there. Seven meets Zodiac meets Silence of the Lambs. But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? The reason why I said it's Zodiac is because that's the only serial killer movie that I'm aware of that ends with an ambiguous conclusion as to who the killer is. That's fair. I'll never forget the end of the movie Zodiac because a guy actually stood up <laughs> at the end of that movie and said, that's it? What the fuck? Right. <laughs> so Denzel Washington is the veteran former city cop that teams up with Rami Malek, who is the rising star detective, to work a case on a serial killer that goes back to when Denzel was working a similar case five years before that in 19. 19- 85. The two buddy cops suspect that Jared Leto is the killer, but they can't prove it. After lots of cat and mouse games, Rami Malik goes for a ride with Leto to the desert to ostensibly dig up a victim. But Malik kills Leto with a shovel and Denzel helps him cover it up. Then it is revealed that Denzel accidentally shot and killed a prostitute at a crime scene five years ago. By accident. And that was covered up for no reason at all. I mean, that's that's when... I was like, I don't understand. He accidentally (laughs) shot her. And then everybody was like, let's cover this up. And he didn't even ask anybody to cover it up. They're just like, I'm going to say that he was murdered by this serial killer. And everyone was like, okay. And that was it. Brianna Barksdale, (laughs) can you help us out? And she's like, I'm going to write it down as multiple stab wounds. Right. They didn't even ask her to. Nope. And then she like resented him afterwards. And he was like, like, I got this. (laughs) 
Right. And then like they go out to dinner like five years later and she's like, this is to so remind me of everything that you did. And I, I was like, I didn't see that. I saw him accidentally shoot somebody. <laughs> and then you guys are at the autopsy. And then you, you're like, I'm going to write it up as a stab wound. I didn't hear Denzel say you got to write this up as a stab wound. Like, like that's that's where this movie just it could have connected. It could have done it. It was the little things that didn't connect. I, I can I can write ten more little things that'll that'll connect the dots, right? I mean, that's that's the thing. So after Rami Malek kills Jared Leto, Denzel hugs him, and then he sends him a red hair beret, which was of the victim that they were trying to dig up in the desert that Denzel presumably found in Jared Leto's apartment when he cleaned it out to show Malik that yes, we got the right guy. Jared Leto was the killer. But then it's revealed that Denzel just went to a store and just bought a bunch of berets that he doesn't need anymore. So he burns them along with all the other stuff. So we really don't know if Leto is a real killer or not. And of course, by the end of the movie, we really don't care. <laughs> this is the part where I start feeling like it's a trap. Now, I like this movie, but within 35 minutes of the movie, I knew this, was, this thing was going to crash and burn. But at that point, I couldn't take my eyes off of it, right? Logan, what did you think? It was longer for me. It's it's a third act train wreck. For yep. me, it's gone places for two acts, and we are circling in on the killer, and there's intensity, and all of it's because of Denzel. All of it. That guy, we talked about him already. He is, he's incredible. He's and he carries it for two acts. He cannot carry it through the third act. And Mike, <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up the fact that it was written back when all of these serial killer movies were coming out. The reason it didn't get made is pretty clear to me is because it falls apart in third act and that you've got seven and silence of the lambs and some of these other like five-star movies that are generally incredible all the way through. It's shot. Well, it's shot clean. Right. Um, I think it's got a nice style to it. It does. I think they took this like 80s nostalgia that was going on and said, look, we've been doing this 80s nostalgia for a long time. I think we can I think we could hit play on this 90s nostalgia now. And they did. And some of the things that they did was they made it feel like a 90s movie, right? It wasn't right. a 90s period piece so much as it was made to feel like a 90s movie. I suspect the reason we all liked it, at least in part, is because they don't make movies like this anymore. Correct. Almost the entire soundtrack was Motown. Every movie in the 90s had a Motown soundtrack. The opening scene was ripped from the script of Silence of the Lambs. So she comes cruising down that dark road. She's blasting Love Shack. She's singing with it. I'm, the first thing that goes in my mind is American Girl, Buffalo Bill, the senator's daughter. And I say, you know what? I don't care. I recognize it as ripped from Silence of the Lambs. And I'm like, yes, let's do this. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. The reason why I picked up on seven was there's this one scene where it was like scene number 47, where Rami Malek and Denzel are alone talking to each other about things that are not the case. And Denzel's response could have been taken verbatim from some point in the screenplay with Morgan Freeman in seven. Do you believe in God, Joe? When I see a sunrise, a thunderstorm, or two on the ground, yes, I think there's a God. When I see all this, I think he's long past giving a shit. I mean, isn't that Morgan Freeman saying, 
like the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. It's interesting that you brought that up because the one highlight from the entire movie for me, other than Denzel's performance, is Denzel's line when Rami Malek says, Things probably changed a lot since he left. Still got to catch him, right? Yeah. Not that much has changed. Huh? <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah. That is actually fantastic. Yeah. And a line that was almost just like, Denzel had to have looked at the script and said, I'm going to say something else here. <laughs> I know what you want me to say, and right. I'm going to say it the right way. Right. I'm I know gonna, how to do this. I'm going to knock this out this of the this park, role. right? Yeah. So good. I think what he was going for is that this is an obsession movie, and he just didn't land that punch like Fincher did in Zodiac. And there's another okay. movie that's very similar to what I think he was going for, which is called The Pledge, which was directed by Sean Penn. It stars Jack Nicholson. It's a 2001 film. I saw it once. It's not very satisfying, but I can recall it to this day, right? And it's about a cop that's trying to find the serial killer and he promises, the detective promises the family, I'm going to catch this guy. And there's a cat and mouse going on and he, he sets up a sting operation and the serial killer dies in a car accident in the third act on the way there. And you never find out if he was right about it. And the guy loses his mind because he never found out. <laughs> the Mental Defective League in formation. <laughs> this movie didn't land that punch because there was almost too much cat and mouse story. There's more cat and mouse in that movie than Tom and Jerry. <laughs> no doubt. And I went and saw it the next day. I said, I've seen enough of this. There were so many flashbacks into Denzel's past that you're thinking like, this guy is the same guy, right? It's five years ago. Right. I, that's the other thing. I thought it was like 20 years ago. I think you're being generous to the writer. I would hold that against the writer here uh, as the draftsman of the screenplay. Mm. And the reason I would do that is because this angel theme uh, that was worked into the movie made no sense. It did not have any footing in the movie it was like a total add-on where denzel's like an angel that's sort of looking after him he stays at like the saint agnes yeah his name's, De- his name's deacon. his name is deacon exactly and then at the, the end the the message that he sends along with the beret is no, no angels, angels right he has yeah. to come down from where he's at to be the city cop in los angeles whatever theme you're trying to do is totally manufactured and it's not fitting well with yeah that's material. dog shit did you just throw that in there because like you felt like you were supposed to to do that because it had nothing to do <laughs> with the movie. And that's how I took it, which is why I give this movie the lowest rating that I have given any movie that we have reviewed on this show as a main title. And that is two stars. This is a two star movie. I'm pretty much with you, Mike. I, it barely gets to two stars. And that's because Denzel so good he's so wills wills it yes and when i started watching the movie i was in the first 20 minutes i was a a little i was super annoyed with rami malik i was like i this guy's not that good he's overrated he's ruining this movie for me already right line that came out of that guy's mouth i was like i hate you (laughs) (laughs) It, it was like the casting director were sitting around going like well, everybody's busy, so who won an Oscar recently? What was the movie that you said? Oh, it was The Good Shepherd. We're going to get the best supporting actor, the best actor of that year, and the best actor of that year, best director, best screenwriter. 
If you put Ryan Gosling in the role of Remy Malik, this true blue guy, family man who is a riser and then he catches a case that he becomes obsessed with, who starts to unravel slowly. I mean, that was supposed to be the point of it is that he was unraveling because of the obsession. Just like Denzel. Catch this guy. But that's where it missed because you never saw Denzel unravel. You never saw Denzel pull at the thread, right? Like that was the problem is that like, if they showed that Denzel had like a nervous breakdown and then found out who the killer was in a different case, but then it was suppressed because of a violation of the suspect's fourth amendment rights. And then he ended up like killing him on the side and then everybody covered it up. And then you find out that he was wrong. That would make sense. Not (laughs) accidentally shooting a prostitute at the scene that jumped out of a bush. And they're like, we got to cover this up. Like it made, it made zero sense. You could probably even keep Jared Leto, but I would, I would put Michael Shannon in that role. Cause I think he could play somebody more ambiguous, right? Like, or you, you would guess a little bit more. Maybe in more capable hands, like you said, the guy we're going to talk about next, Michael Shannon, maybe it gets there. Leto, he overacts the whole entire time because he plays it up so heavy that there's no ambiguity because of the way Leto is playing the character. But I think there's supposed to be. There is. There's absolutely supposed to be ambiguity about that. It's so funny because it's called the little things. They missed on every little fucking thing that they could have missed on, (laughs) except for the one big thing that they didn't was Denzel Washington, right? Right. But I mean, all the little things ripped this movie apart. You know, I think if Spielberg makes this movie in 94, it's a good movie. You put Gene Hackman in Denzel's role. You put Tom Cruise in Remy Malek's role. And you put... Ted Levine. (laughs) Don, right? I mean... (laughs) It would have been great if Hackman would have come and taken the role away from the sheriff, our buddy from Oz. I love that guy, though, man. I do. I love that guy. He was terrible in this movie, though. Boy, did he not age well. I did not see that coming. He did not age well, and he did not do well. And he was still in those clear glass offices, just like they had in Oz. Yeah, man. He can't get out of Oswald Penitentiary. (laughs) People can change, Saeed, even me. The problem with this movie, as I see it, is I criticize writer-director movies often because usually you have the script, you have the direction, then you have the editing room where all this stuff goes on the cutting room floor. And if you have one person doing all of that stuff, it becomes a problem. The usual suspects could have been the little things. Right. But because you had a writer and a director who who were talented and had different things, and then in the edit room, they changed a lot of that stuff. That's what makes a great movie. you got to go through that process. Checks and balances is what it is. got to have somebody looking after their lane. Correct. And this guy wrote it, and it needed to go to Spielberg and have him say, this is too dark, change your third act, and then I'll make your movie. This is a great point that you're making, Mike, is that there has to be a check and balance. Like, I think the Bears suck because Nagy wants to call his own offense. He wants to call the plays. Yes. It's the ego of having the control over every aspect of it. Why Nick Saban's a great coach is because he hires the best offensive coordinators and the best defensive coordinators to work for him. Correct. I want to give a different example than the football because we're not like football coaches talking about movies. Um, <laughs> when, when we try cases 
at my firm, the lawyers trying it do not negotiate the settlement while it is going on. A attorney that is observing the trial will be the one that negotiates the settlement with the money person from the insurance company. That's so there can be a check and balance on it. Heat of the battle, right? You can't, you're just not thinking straight. Yeah, that's what this guy did, man. This guy was just like, no. And that's what I see is the failure of this is that this guy just got to go down the road of what he thought his vision was 30 years ago. And I applaud the idea of 85 to 90 period piece. Oh my God, we were all over it. We were right. all I, over it. I would have gone to the theater to watch. Sure. It, yeah. And in, in non-pandemic times, this would have been a theater draw movie for me. Based on the trailer, right? Of oh, course. Medellin for sure. Medellin. That's, that's where I was going. Yeah. To sort of echo your comments, Mike, in my career, there's been a handful of projects because I'm a construction lawyer in which either a bunch of other contractors passed or the contractor that's on the job is getting the boot because the project is not going well. And one can say, "Mm, in hindsight, like Spielberg passing on it, that should have been a red flag. We shouldn't get into this project with this particular client. There's got to be a reason why the project's not going well. This movie was written back then. It didn't get made. We should have all known from that, that there's a red flag that it probably didn't get made for a reason. And and what you're hitting on, Logan, is the only reason why this movie got made is because this guy wrote and directed The Blind Side. So he gets to do what he wants now. And this is what he wanted to do. And instead of saying, you know what, I'm a big time director and I can direct whatever I want and Warner Brothers is going to make it. So why don't I just find the best writer to do the best script? Because I'm going to get whatever talent I want because it's Warner and they'll pay them. He wanted to make his own script. This was so self-indulgent where he's like, nobody made my movie back in the early 90s. And now I'm just going to make it myself. Nobody believed in me back in 1993. And I made The Blind Side, which is a shitty movie. You protect his blind side. When you look at him, you think of me. How you have my back. How you have his. It was edited <laughs> by a guy named Robert Frazen. Who's the who, best, best editor. His filmography includes The Founder, The Highwayman, also a John Lee Hancock movie. He is the hanger-on to John Lee Hancock. So, so once he's he's, not when he does t- his next movie, he's going he's gonna to use the same guy. Yeah, and so this is not like Scorsese and, you know, Thelma. Thelma. Mm-hmm. Right? And when she's like, Marty, your movie is too long. I have to <laughs> cut it down. I can't do it. This guy is just like, Mr. Hancock, this is, this is maybe the best work of your career. <laughs> it's, it's a, a real, real movie. movie. <laughs> it's a real whodunit. This is a film I want them to remember me by. Denzel puts butts in seats. So, but for the pandemic, I would assume that this would be huge box office for a couple weekends, regardless of what the reviews say, because people go see shitty Denzel movies. I would have gone to see I'm one of them. I would have gone to see this movie even after the reviews came out. When we talked about Denzel, we were like, you know, does he play the same role? Does he play the same character? And we were like, yeah, but who cares? Because they're almost always three stars or better. This is the exception. This is unfortunate. I don't know. It's not I don't a know. I, I don't know if I could do it. I don't it's know. not a three-star movie. You're right. You're right. Two and so a half, I mean, maybe. My floor for Denzel was three and a half. Yeah. He always gets hits, is what you said. He still got a hit, in my opinion. It's not his fault. No. But 
And I'm mad at them for doing this to him, right? I'm furious, but I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how to end this. This will go on and on and on. There's nothing you can do about it. figure it's more comfy here in the old hopeless emptiness after all huh? oh wow that did it look at his face what's the matter wheeler am i getting warm all right son i think we'd better you know something i wouldn't be surprised if he knocked her up on purpose just so he could spend the rest of his life hiding behind a maternity dress, that way he'd never have to find out what he's really made of. Michael Shannon in his Academy Award-nominated performance for Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Revolutionary Road in 2008. He was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor in 2016's Nocturnal Animals. Michael Shannon has 100 acting credits on his IMDb page. That does not include his 32 plays that he did from 1991 to 2019. And he's 46 years old. And these are not hayseed plays that Michael Shannon does. These are plays that were directed by the likes of Philip Seymour Hoffman and co-starred the likes of Ellen Burstyn. I'm going to be on television. Michael Shannon's filmography is an interesting one. It starts in 1993 with Groundhog Day, where he plays Fred. His bride-to-be has cold feet, and Bill Murray convinces her to marry him. He is basically a studio guy from 2000 to 2004. The guy does 17 movies in that time period. And almost all of them are for big studios. Warner, 20th Century Fox, Sony, Disney, Paramount, Universal, MGM. He is the minor or supporting role guy in the early aughts for every single big studio in Hollywood. And then in 2006, he does the movie Bug. And the interesting thing about that is that it's not only a turning point in his career, it harkens back to the beginning of his career in theater, because when that play, Bug, came out in 1996, Shannon was the guy that did that role originally. So he reprised that theater role 10 years later. And that movie was directed by William Friedkin, who directed The French Connection and The Exorcist. This is not some schmo. Right. That did this weird movie called Bug. He also, after 2006, that's when he gets paired up with this guy, Jeff Nichols. He is the Leonardo DiCaprio to Martin Scorsese at that point with this guy, Nichols. And so he does Shotgun Stories in 2007, Take Shelter, Mud, Midnight Special in 2016, and Loving in 16. Michael Shannon has worked with a lot of big name directors and a lot of critically acclaimed directors. Sidney Lumet, Sam Mendes, Werner Herzog, David Kep, Ryan Johnson, Tom Ford, Peter Bogdanovich, and an upcoming feature, he will be working with the great David O. Russell. I think he's beloved out of the players' company. You know, I think they like him. He's an Absolutely. actor's actor. For sure. He is, I think, a theater actor more than he is a movie actor. And to the extent you can criticize his acting for being intense and over the top and Pacino-like. 
They're looking at everything I do. And you let this happen? I think that's because he is more comfortable in the play acting setting, which is more intense and over the top. When I look at his career, I see a guy who is a lot like Willem Dafoe. Oh, Mike, well done. Well done. I was just about to say that myself. I can't believe you stepped on that. Don't you know this? I just wanted to know if you know. (laughs) He was nominated in 2009 for Best Supporting Actor for Revolutionary Road, lost to Heath Ledger, does Boardwalk Empire 2010 to 2014, 2015, he's nominated for a Golden Globe for 99 Homes. In 2016, well, well he deserved. got well-deserved, well deserved. for sure. And, and not good. a very good movie. He's Not a very good. good movie, but he's very good in it. And it changed my opinion of Andrew Garfield. Didn't like that guy at all until oh, I, I saw that I think that, that kid's movie. great. 99 Homes has sort of changed my opinion or perception of him. Every other homeowner and investor from here to China turned my life into evictions. In 2016, well, Michael Shannon is nominated for a Tony Award. And then also in that same year, he's nominated for Nocturnal Animals. He lost to Mahir Shah Ali for Moonlight. Fair enough. I mean, the guy lost to Heath Ledger and Mahir Shah. I mean, off break. You know, look, not every performance that Michael Shannon does should be nominated for an Academy Award. But when he plays those roles that play well to his talents and the characteristics that he does well, it's some of the best work that anybody's ever done. There is a storm coming like nothing you have ever seen. And not a one of you is prepared for it. Does he have a niche like Kevin Costner with the sports and the Western movies that he should stay in where he can really crush it and hit it out of the park? Or is his sort of prolific approach where I just like, I just take everything and I'm, I'm generally Michael Shannon in every role, right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't really transport you. You see, you see kind of the Michael Shannon guy in every role, but the boardwalk empire role is similar to the role that he plays in the shape of water, shape of water, one best picture. The nocturnal animals role is not that far off of what he does in boardwalk. I didn't kill Stu. Al Capone did, but I have killed other men. I think he has a delivery that is recognizable, just like Willem Dafoe. He's unique looking. He's got this, this, right. these, these big eyes, like almost like bug eyes, right? And he's tall and his voice is such that it's just very commanding. He's himself to a degree, but if any of you have seen the miniseries called The Little Drummer Girl, where he plays a Mossad agent in the 1970s that is running assets. He's amazing in it. He's still Michael Shannon, but I mean, he's in Israelite in the 1970s. And it's believable. It's very believable. But the delivery is still Michael Shannon. I mean, that, um, that was the slight disappointment I had with Elvis versus Nixon. It's a great movie. He's great in it, but he doesn't really give you the Elvis feel. He gives you the Michael Shannon is dressed up as Elvis feel, right? Right, right. And I actually that, really like that, Logan, about the way uh, he played that role, that he didn't do the... He, did, like, he didn't go all in, right? And, and that's okay. If he was in a play, they would have told him, don't impersonate Elvis, right? Right. right. So Just be who this guy would have been. Thank you, Mr. President. And now... As a small token of my appreciation, I would like to present you with a gift. Oh. So let me ask you guys this. 
what's the downside of Michael Shannon taking less roles, but really, really diving in? Really giving it the, you know, the Daniel Day approach. Because I think the guy, I love the guy. I think he has the chops to really, really put some stuff on screen. What's the difference between him and Tom Wilkinson then, Logan? This this guy is like a British actor in the way that he's a professional. He shows up to work. He puts out a lot of content and he doesn't need to dive in. So he's going to be around for a very long time. He's going to age. He's going to be in some some good movies, and he's going to put forth a lot of good performances. I think the downside is is that you get less Daniel Day-Lewis because of that. I think Daniel Day-Lewis, it would be a trip to get inside that guy's mind after the torment that he's done to it for his craft. I don't want to talk about those things. This guy is a professional. He shows up to work. He does his job, and then he goes home, right? Like he, You love those guys just like I do. I like Mike's call about Defoe. I mean, Defoe doesn't really transport you. You can't because his facial features and his voice are, and his voice are such right. that you cannot get away from it rather than run away from it. Lean into it. That's it. Yeah. That's what I was hoping you'd say. He was very much shaped by his adolescence. He was living in Lexington, Kentucky and his parents got divorced and his dad lived in Chicago and his mom lived in Lexington And he did this thing where he sort of bounced back and forth in between those two places, including doing like a couple of years in high school in Chicago and then doing a couple in, in Lexington. You were two different people, weren't you? Right. You were, you were dragging your A's on the weekends. (laughs) (laughs) You were psychiatrist. (laughs) The thing was, is that I think that really did have an impact on him because he talked about how he could not make friends. And one of the reasons why he liked theater so much and doing the drama club stuff was because he could just sort of be a weirdo and it was okay. Whereas if he did that kind of stuff around other people in social situations, it was like, well, no one's going to be your friend because we don't know who you are. And this is strange and you're just an odd bird, which he is. The theater is like his outlet. And so it just became like the place, like his place where he would go. And so he feels more at home on stage when they say cut, he's like, but I was just getting into it. So he does really well in these supporting roles, I think, in movies because they, he can channel it for that small, like that scene I played at the top with Revolutionary Road, the dinner table. He is phenomenal top to bottom. It sounds like they let him just run loose in Nocturnal Animals. I mean, it's Tom Ford, right? The guy's made two movies. Right. Right. He's And he's otherwise a fashion designer. So he's just like, go ahead. Right. I, I, have to make, I have to make these, I have to design these glasses while, while you film the scene. So he and the DA made a deal and they got all politics. He doesn't really have like an agent that's telling him, this is what you need to do. He doesn't have the Hall committee. He doesn't have, you know, this kind of brain trust. He just sort of, I think he's a true artist. His method is just much different than Daniel Day Lewis's. And I've seen the picture of him watching the Oscars at the old town ale house. No. Oh no. yeah. He's literally sitting at the bar with a beer, looking up at a TV that has the Oscars on it. And you almost got to admire a guy who plays Elvis that says, I'm not going to play him like Elvis, right? Like, For sure. That's what I took away from that. Part of the reason he got on my radar screen is because we had done the Shape of Water year and we had done a discussion over Nocturnal Animals. And I was like, I mean, this guy, he's he's a two-time nominee and he cranks out a lot of stuff. 
what's this guy all about? I want to, I want to go a little bit deeper, but yeah, I mean, to your Mike, the Willem Dafoe comparison is I think pretty perfect. Oh yeah. I mean, um, the guy's got balls. He'll, he's going to get nominated probably two more times and he's never going to win. Right. He's never going to quite get there, but he's a great supporting person in you to have in your movies. I enjoyed all of the movies at uh, the, uh, <laughs> I told you that, the complete unknown with with Rachel Weiss was an Amazon Prime movie. Didn't quite hit. He's really good in it, and Rachel Weiss is not bad in it. I love Rachel it's, Weiss. Yeah. It, so do I. It's just not that good of a movie. That's the other thing is sometimes you get penalized when you have this big performance like that dinner scene in Revolutionary Road. So then anytime you have any type of outburst again, then you're just the Revolutionary Role player. But right, you know it. If it works, it works, right? I got nominated for a fucking Academy Award. What do you want to not do it anymore? Hey, hey Al Pacino won for Pacino. a woman, right? Right, for doing right. that. No, I'm just getting warmed up. Tell us a little bit about the movie Bug. It's like a love story. This this couple meets, and he starts to believe that he's getting bitten by these bugs, and she doesn't feel it. It's Ashley Judd at first, and she doesn't feel it. At first, but she she essentially commits to him, but it slowly escalates to paranoid schizophrenia. And she buys into his paranoid schizophrenia. You know, at first it's a bug and then it's tinfoil everywhere. And then they're smoking like meth. And then it's like alien involvement. And she just, it's just two people in an apartment for the entire movie. I think maybe somebody goes to deliver something at the end and he actually stabs them and she goes all in on it. But he clearly was a paranoid schizophrenic and she, she was in love with him. And so she just, she bought into it. And and I just remember watching, it's like, it's like 80 minutes long. And I was watching it with my brother, like when it came (laughs) out being like, this movie went in a direction that I I did not see going at all. But I mean, I've only watched it once, but I I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, I remember where (laughs) I was when I watched it, you know, exactly. But Matt, the reason why I asked you about Bug was that I thought it was really interesting that he was known for playing basically a paranoid schizophrenic in the, in the 90s play. That was a, like a, a big breakout play role for him. Right. And then he plays that role in the middle of the aughts, which is a turning point in his career from being sort of like a studio supporting role to like indie powerhouse guy. Right. And when he does Take Shelter with Jeff Nichols, He's a paranoid schizophrenic in that movie. He has these apocalyptic visions that this big thing's going to happen and builds up to this ambiguous ending as to whether he is he a paranoid schizophrenic or or is he, you know, a, a visionary prophet. And so I just think that when you look at that and you think, you know, that's 25 years of the guy's career sort of doing this thing where he's sort of either playing somebody who is a paranoid schizophrenic or who might be a paranoid schizophrenic or who just has a, you know, revolutionary road has an undiagnosed mental illness. I mean, the guy has an area that he dominates. And I, and I truly think that he just doesn't look at his career in a Tom Cruise, you know, Matthew McConaughey type fashion where he's looking for the next big thing that's going to make him the most money. He's, he is an artist. His heart and soul is not in movies. I think it's in theater. And I think that's where he really likes to be and wants to be and as long as great directors call him up to do movies he doesn't care he plays general zod too in superman so correct he, he did go for 
money. I mean, at some point. It was interesting to hear him talk about that because he said that one of the reasons why he did that was because he thought there was some morality tale. He thought there was more to it than just being a superhero movie. Like he, it was definitely not a calculated choice where he was like, I need to get some of that comic book money. I, I agree with you. I, that concept of like morality is seen in the, in the one from 1980. I think he thought it was going to be a little bit more like that. And boy, it wasn't. That was a bad movie. But Michael Shannon, there's more there for him if he just slows down a little bit, right? Like, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, I can't need the money anymore, right? Like, so just don't, instead of doing four movies a year, do two and just like pour your heart into the two. Cause I, I think we'll get a better product. But I think he's, I think he's happier just letting the directors tell him what to do rather than him driving the boat the other way around. He might, he might be. But I, I agree. I think he likes to see himself as a tool rather than the the star. I mean, he and Defoe describe themselves the same way. Yeah. I don't know if he could carry a movie. I really don't know if he's got. I, I don't know. I don't either. But I, I don't think know. he does. I'd really like to see him work with Scott Cooper. I think he. I think he. He working with Scott Cooper. He might be able to carry a movie. Okay. Because those two guys match up. Right. I can bite. I. I would love to see Tom Ford do another movie with him. All right, so when we come back, we're going to be going very far back in the Wayback Machine. And that is 1944, Casablanca. We'll always have Paris. We didn't have, we, we lost it until you came to Casablanca. We got it back last night. And I said I would never leave you. And you never will. I've got a job to do, too. Where I'm going, you can't follow. What I've got to do, you can't be any part of. Those I'm no good at being noble, but it doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. Someday you'll understand that. Ah, no. He's looking at you, kid. Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman in the 1942 classic Casablanca. The movie won Outstanding Motion Picture, as it was known, at the 16th Academy Awards in 1944. Michael Curtis directed Casablanca. He won Best Director. Paul Lucas for Watch on the Rhine won Best Actor. The Best Actress was Jennifer Jones for The Song of Bernadette and a lot of other people that we've never heard of or movies we've never seen won <laughs> some stuff. So here's the deal about this segment. This is all about Casablanca, right? No doubt. And this, no doubt. This, this movie is a, an American classic. It is... It's Warner Brothers, I think, first Academy Award. Should have been their last based on the little things. <laughs> or Tom and Jerry. <laughs> um but you know it's it's you know we talked about the Maltese Falcon a little bit on the episode that we did about Citizen Kane and you got three actors in that movie you got Humphrey Bogart, Sidney Greenstreet and Peter Lorre all of whom in the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca and then there's one other movie also from the 40s they all play the same character and they all sort of play it in the same manner. I mean, Peter Lorre is Peter Lorre in every movie. He is the weird German short dude with the bug eyes. 
and Humphrey Bogart is the the suave whatever with the signature voice. Sidney Greenstreet is the he's the fat man in the Maltese. That's what they Falcon. wanted back That's then. That's what they, they wanted. I mean, they were right? they were like, you are you know a Phillips screw. You're a wing nut, right? I mean, like Correct. you. You, I mean, that, that's what it was, you know. The, the long and short of it for Casablanca is this. This is the one of the best, if not the best, Hollywood movies ever made. And, and I, I put that in a category of Hollywood, as in these sets are not real. This is not Citizen Kane, where we're going for some realistic depiction of like some, you know, real character. This is all dreamlike Hollywood sets with music and great cinematography and the the hottest actors of the time. Saying it's a Hollywood movie is a is a unique category. It's from that time. It's from that golden age of Hollywood. They did movies a certain way, but it's the best from that time period, and it still holds up to today. What was going on in that year that that made Casablanca such a fit? This is a great question because my wife, when we were watching this, brought the same question up, which is they're they're fighting the Nazis, right? And part of the reason why I think the movie is so good, and we've Matt, you've t- you've hit on this multiple times, is it's really pretty simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. The guy runs a bar in Casablanca, which is like a waypoint for people who are trying to get out of Europe to the United States away from the nazis he's got a history as sort of like you know being a rebel he gets people out so people come to his club it's a super simplistic story bogart plays it really well this is in the early 40s so world war ii is still going on i don't think people at the time looked at nazis the same way that we did later because of what was found out afterwards this movie was made in 1942, 1943. World War II ends in 45. And so this I don't pre-discovery think... pre-discovery of the concentration camps. I think people knew something about it, but no one knew the extent. No one knew the extent at this point. So this movie, for one, they fudged it completely because Casablanca came out in 1942. It did not come out in 43. So therefore, it's got no business being at the 1944 Oscars. <laughs> Correct. Okay. So, but the other thing is this, is that in, in this time between us getting in the war with Pearl Harbor in December 7th, 1941 and D-Day in June of 1944, you have this period where Americans are trying to figure out how it is that they fit in the war and how it is that they're going to stick around. Rick is basically America because he's sitting there in this sort of neutral zone in between the Germans and, you know, on the one side and, you know, the Victor Laszlo on the other. And he's sort of cafe Americana where everybody comes and hangs out. And he's just interested in making money and having gambling and having a successful business. And he's not really taking sides. It, it hit that, that tone of, we, we can't be neutral anymore. We've got to pick the side. We've got to go on the right side. One of the things I thought was really interesting about the conversation that he has with the captain is he said, I know about you, Rick. In 1935, you ran guns to Ethiopia. In 1936, you fought in Spain on the loyalist side. I got well paid for it on both occasions. The winning side would have paid you much better. 
the Spanish Civil War that he's talking about, that was the fascist on one side. And Italy, of course, were the, they were the fascists on the, Ethi- the Ethiopia-Italy War. So Rick is not just a cynic arms dealer, right? He's an idealist, which is why he has this love affair with Ingrid Bergman in Paris, because he's a romantic at heart, right? And it's only because he got his heart broken that he looks like he's this cynic in Casablanca. And actually he is... He is just America sitting on the sidelines waiting to to get into this. So that's why it struck the right chord at the right time, because it was it was the mood of the of the country for where we were in the war, which is trying to figure out how we fit into this thing. Well, Rick, you're not only a sentimentalist, but you've become a patriot. I believe it seemed like a good time to start. I think perhaps you're right. The interesting thing that I was going to point out to you guys is this, and this is something I've seen Casablanca before, and it never really dawned on me until I was watching the scene with the two of them, with Humphrey Bogart and the guy that plays the captain. It's right after the guy comes up to Rick and says, I'm sorry, but I need 20,000 francs because basically I made a mistake and, you know, I got to pay this out. So he's like, all right, I got to go out to my safe. And he starts doing the walk and talk with the captain and they're there he's getting the money out of the safe he's moving and the camera's moving which is very different from the 1940s style of filmmaking the camera was very stationary the actors were stationary but they're moving all around they're walking they're talking they're handing over money and then there's this little great like back and forth between the two of them right after that Twenty thousand francs says it is is that a serious offer I just paid out 20. I'd like to get it back. Make it 10. I'm only a poor, corrupt official. And to me, that is so Sorkin-esque. Like, right, it's, right. it's great, you know? And, and so you can see the influence that this movie had on guys like Aaron Sorkin and that snappy, poppy writing. What in heaven's name brought you to Casablanca? My health. I came to Casablanca for the waters. The waters? What waters? We're in the desert. I was misinformed. I was slightly disappointed with some of the famous quotes from the movie and how they come across. Like he says, here's looking at you kid multiple times. It's pretty forced. Everybody's heard that line at some point in their life, right? Like it's got some famous quotes. Uh, Humphrey is amazing in it. It's a very simplistic story that every, I think everybody can generally get behind. It's just really well done. I can't imagine any of the other movies that year would have been as quality as that. Maltese Falcon for me was a a bit better. It just ran up against some, some other great stuff that year, but I very much enjoyed going back in the way, way back machine and watching some of these, these movies that are 80 something years old. I'm amazed at how good some of them are. The quality. It's, it really is. It's, it, it's, it's a nice It's amazing mm-hmm. to have something that holds up that well that is, you know, that we can sit here and, and talk about at, at a level be, where you're like, that most of the stuff that they make today isn't even close to this, right? And this was right, made 80 years ago. Let's let's be clear. I mean, we're, from, from not even a movie snob, like, it's tough. It's tough to, like, try to buy into, like, someone's saying, like, Here's looking at you, kid. And like, like people make fun of stuff like that, right? Like, cause it's just not current. You will be shocked as to how good it is, right? Like if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, 
Maltese Falcon, Casablanca. You will be shocked as to how relevant it is. You will be shocked as to how good it is up to the standards of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010s. I mean, like it's it's it, it's shocking to the listeners. So so don't what? don't think we're just being movie snobs. We're not. Right. People are capable of, of incredible things and, and that that withstand the test of time. These are these are examples of them. So right. it, it's important that we talk to it. You're absolutely right, Logan. Humphrey definitely does that in Casablanca. I, I'm so glad I got to go back and watch it. I'm looking forward to the next time we hit the the way way back machine. Yeah, and, and I don't know the answer as to how they fudged it, but they are going to give Casablanca the best picture Oscar. Well, Jack Jack they... Warner was just like, you know, the Harvey of back then. He's just like. <laughs> Right. If I don't get it then, just give it to us next year. No problem, right? So the interesting thing about Ingrid uh, Bergman is that she's also in another Academy Award-nominated movie for Best Picture, which is For Whom the Bell Tolls, which I also watched. Um, How was that? Casablanca is in black and white. For Whom the Bell Tolls is in color. It is a faithful adaptation of For Whom the Bell Tolls by Ernest Hemingway. So he wrote it from the perspective of an American fighting in the Spanish Civil War, which was... Rick's character in Casablanca was somebody who, an American who fought in the Spanish Civil War. It's interesting that the, like the two best movies at that time were just sort of about the same thing, but for whom the bell tolls is not a good movie. (laughs) It's you've got like Russians and Greeks. And like, I think the lady who won the Academy Award for best supporting actress, I think she's Greek and she's playing a Spanish person. And Ingrid Bergman is like, Oh yeah, no, I'm just uh I'm from I'm from Sweden and uh yeah, I just kind of came here. This ridiculous acting and it's there's like the the words like are dubbed really poorly and it's like it's so cheesy and melodramatic and but when you watch that next to Casablanca and you're like, who are the idiots they got to make to adapt this Hemingway novel? Because the Hemingway's novel's great and they tried to make it almost exactly the same way story-wise they didn't deviate it annihilation wise and it's not good interesting fact the oxbow incident that was a western and that was the last movie to be nominated for best picture and not be nominated in any other category interesting best picture but no no actor no director no no best sound cinematography no nothing yeah (laughs) just best picture but nothing else Nothing else. <laughs> last picture. No kidding. Yeah, it's the last time that happened. Now they now they wouldn't nominate it. Correct. And they would give it best sound. That's what yes. it would be. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about this time is that they nominated way too many movies. It was very much like we're nominating all the war movies and then sort of everything else that's like this other studios put their money into. It, the Academy Awards are at their 16th year. I mean, we thought they were arbitrary at their 93rd or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So when we come back, we're going to make our picks for next week. In Brooklyn, money changes hands all night long. And it's not the kind of money that you can deposit in a bank. You handle the drop. But all that money needs to end up somewhere. They call it a drop bar. All your money in the bag. Do you know what you're doing? Do you know whose money you're jacking? Fill the bag! Tom Hardy 
James Gandolfini, the drop. We got to be real careful not to turn that into <laughs> us talking about James Gandolfini for 45 minutes. So let's just <laughs> let's set intention We're not, right now. I mean, you know, he's worth it. But we should just do a file under steel on, on just James Gandolfini. Well, I'll tell you what, we should just do a sad podcast on Philip Seymour Hoffman, Robin Williams, and James Gandolfini. Because sure. I'm so, I miss those guys so much. So much. My favorite from the aughts, for sure, Kate Winslet. Well, uh, my heart goes out to you and it will go on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to pick uh, Best Picture 2018 Green Book. We are blitzing through this last decade so that we can make a decision as to what the best movie of the decade is. The also-rans that year were Black Panther, Black Klansman, Bohemian Rhapsody, The Favorite, Roma, A Star is Born, and Vice. I heard they got panned. We'll get into it. We'll get into it. We'll get into it next week. That's it for this week's in-camera review podcast. Mike, Matt, and Logan, we are lawyers talking about movies. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Good night, everyone.